Hey, all, what's up? It's Chase. Guess what? We are way too thin-skinned. Yeah, of course, the world is super hard right now, right? And yet, it's the safest time in the history of the world. Murders, all-time low. Uh, famine, child mortality, all-time lows. And yet, the reporting of those things, the news around those things, like 10,000% higher than ever before. And the anxiety around this stuff, off the charts. Neil Pasricha has written the book you need. And we're going to talk about it right now with Neil. His book is called You Are Awesome. And if you're unfamiliar with Neil's work, um, jump in because he is the talented author of, I think, how many? One, two, three, four, five New York Times bestselling books, including the Book of Awesome, The Happiness Equation. It sold millions of copies of these things. Uh, and his new book, again, You Are Awesome is what we're talking about today. And it's really about resilience. If you felt like you've been knocked off your game, if the world's getting you down, or if you get an inflammatory email, or someone talks smack about your work online, or your boss gets you a little bit of a, a jab that kind of stings a little bit. And I think if you're like me or, or everybody I know, it seems like it's a little bit easier to get knocked off your game now. And Neil argues in his new book that we've become a bunch of China dolls. And he gives us a path through it. And the path is really, really powerful. In this conversation, we're going to talk about doing things that you're not good at in order to build up this muscle. We talk about how living versus being coddled, how taking risks and small chances on, on a daily basis and creating a set of daily habits. Does this sound familiar? I'm a habit freak. But how creating a set of daily habits, even two minutes in the morning, can help you be more resilient and live a more joyful life. Turns out what we really need is awareness. And Neil's work, again, he's written more than a thousand blog posts on his blog and, and however many books. He's also got a great creative live class. I want you to come on this journey with Neil and I, mostly with Neil as your guide, but in doing so, you're going to learn how to positively reframe your own perceptions of failure, of struggle, of the tough stuff, and ultimately how to become your most unbreakable and most awesome self. So I'm going to get out of the way, but before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor and then into Neil Pass Richa. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I got a favor to ask. I've got a new book out. It's called Creative Calling. And of course, I would love for you to pick up a copy or two or 10, but here's why. This is not about a transaction. Of course, I want to sell as many books as I can, but this isn't about my bank account or the publisher. This is about a message and a movement. This is about the fact that there's creativity inside of every person and that if we understand that we each can harness this creativity and use it to channel uh, our, our creativity, not just to make things on a daily basis, yes, that's valuable, but to be able to create the living life that we want for ourselves and ideally for those around us. And right now, everyone has someone in their life who either doesn't identify as a creator or for whom they could use a bump, a nudge, a little bit of a push around their creative calling in life. And it's my hope that this book, I put everything I have into this book, everything. And if you could help me be the messenger for this by delivering them a copy of the book, um, picking up a copy uh, yourself, and of course, sharing that you are reading this book um, with your audience, that would mean everything to me. It's so important that we rally as a community around 
the ideas that we believe in. And this is my ask to you. So thank you very much. And now, okay, now let's get into today's episode. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chase. In from hailing from Toronto to the north, is that correct? <laughs> yes, I am in Toronto, home of the uh, 2019 World Champion Toronto Raptors. Although we Ooh. don't talk about that anymore because we lost our best player. Uh oh, yeah, that's going to be tough to recover from. Well, I, I we hail the uh, hail from the northwest here. I'm representing Seattle today, the home of the Sounders, the MLS Cup champions, and soon to be. Um, uh, NFL football champion, Seattle Seahawks as well. But we'll, we'll I, I like that. that. I like that. You're, I was like, you're going to cling to MLS, eh? But no, I, I the, like the future prediction for the Seahawks. We'll go with that. They're having oh. a good year. They're having a good year. No, they're having it. You guys have a team. We don't have a team. So I, I, I can I can live vicariously. Yeah, good. I'll take whatever I can get from my homies. Um, hey, man, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. And congratulations to you, too. Oh, well. But I will confess before we start recording, um, I just for those of you who are listening, I was getting some knowledge bombs from Neil about um, about well, Neil sold millions, certainly a million, if not millions of copies of books, and I have a handful of of author friends that are in that category. And anytime I speak to them, uh, Neil just for example told me like three things that I could do differently that would <laughs> change change my author my author experience because for those of you who don't know writing books is a weird uh and sometimes lonely thing and it's a little bit of an esoteric industry from the inside and then there are people like neil who just come along and you i don't know if it's from trial and error or just being uh wiser than hell that you you guys it seems like you know it all so thank you for helping me and congratulations again on your book um how many this is number three for you is that right this uh, it's, it's bizarrely number seven, um, what? but <laughs> yeah, I know, well, because the book of awesome was my first book, but it had so many sequels that so they all got, you know, book of even more awesome book of a holiday. Awesome. You know, I, the calendars. So they all get lost in there and lumped together into one book and everybody, including my own brain. Um, and, you, and your, <laughs> your compliments, notwithstanding, I will say a huge part of selling a million books is gigantic amount of luck and timing and at the time that the book of Austin came out i should mention to people listening i was going through like a like a divorce and i was i, I just lost my best friend I, I was living alone for the first time so what was happening in my personal life chase was anytime i was traveling i was like hmm can i stay here an extra day visit every single bookstore in the city introduce myself sign every single copy of the books sit here for a couple hours and tell people about it so Partly, it was just a gigantic investment of time that I had because my life was so empty, you know, relative to where it was before and where it is today. And I just want to, I just want to insert that, like, with a little sort of needle into that into the compliments you 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 gave because I just want people to know that a big part of it is timing and luck and chance and just maybe if I hadn't gone through heartbreak and I hadn't had empty evenings and weekends, you know, that would never have happened. Well, I guess the books that I'm most familiar with, The Book of Awesome and The Happiness Equation, maybe that's why I was over-indexing on. I don't know if those are your most popular or not. They are. Those are the works that I know most. And I know they they are the ones that have sold uh, millions of copies. So, um, And with the new book, You Are Awesome. You're continuing with the awesome thread. And um, before we go like too deep directly into the book, like what's what's with the awesome framework? <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> the the original thing that happened was back in 2008, I was in a rocky marriage and a, a close friend of mine was suffering from severe depression. And so I came home one night in, in, a, in a sort of a, a clinging at straws attempt to change my own mood. I went to Google and I typed in how to start a blog and I clicked the I'm feeling lucky button. And 10 minutes later, I was at a WordPress screen that said, like, type in the name of your blog here. And I was like, well, I guess I got to come up with something. So I wrote 1000awesomethings.com, actually .wordpress.com. And why did I say that word? Well, because at the time, my mother-in-law was calling everything awesome. She's like, well, that's awesome. Well, that's awesome. And I was like, it's this cheeky tongue-in-cheek word. If you go in Urban Dictionary, you know, it says what Americans use to... to define to, to describe everything, you know what I mean? Like I didn't actually think of things as as that way, but I was feeling so unawesome myself that I was like, okay, this will this will push me out out of my little funk. And the universe conspires to keep you in your lane. You know this, creative live, creative Thank calling. You. I mean, you, you know, if you get a word, you you hold on to it with 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 your hand. So I veered away from that once with the happiness equation, and people were like, who is this guy? You, you know, and I was like, oh, I had, it's my new book. They're like, you wrote that? Isn't don't your books all have like this rainbow awesome on the cover? So, so when it came to this book, uh, which is all about resilience, it was like, how do we put the word awesome somewhere on the cover so at least people who may be familiar with my past books at least they know it's written by me, not that they would read the author's name or anything, you know? <laughs> of course, uh, love it. And it's, it's also, speaking of Creative Live, it's also worth noting that um, you got an amazing uh, ditty on Creative Live. And thank you very much for being a part of that community there. Um, your impact is the, again, you've built this framework around awesome happiness, this most recent um, foray into resilience. These are, these are like big human key human attributes uh for success and i like to i like to read into your work not just success but fulfillment and so what is you know how have you taken on these massive topics you know Mm -hmm. seemingly as uh you know maybe you are a super a super robot or you've got a, a million machines uh feeding information into your brain or maybe you're superhuman but the like how does one individual author uh, attack a subject uh, as large as the subjects that you take on. To me, this is, you know, I, I tried to do that with creativity and creative calling and was just immediately, you know, two years into the project was still overwhelmed and I kind of still am, but I'm dying. This is a little bit of a selfish question too. Like you've taken on these huge, huge topics um, and we'll get into the resilience in just a second, but um, what what guides you towards these massive questions about humanity and and about um, these these key attributes of, of successful and fulfilled people? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, the the question is like kind of like uh, shellacked around a really nice compliment, and I really appreciate that. But I will say, you know, continuing that thread line of how I began, like I was just looking to cheer myself up, so I started this website and I started writing about flipping to the cold side of the pillow in the middle of the night and snow days, which you and I can relate to as northern latitude people. And, and you know, I wrote about getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding, you know, wearing warm underwear from the side of the dryer. This is what 1000awesomethings.com was all about. It was, it was very, very far removed from the world's biggest themes. And it was very focused on like microscopic level of tiny little pleasures. And as the website grew and grew and grew, went viral, it won best blog in the world at, at the, at the Webby Awards. And, um, it, uh, 
you know, got all these literary agents interested, turned into the Book of Awesome. Everyone said, hey, you've written a great book about gratitude. And I was thinking in my head, I didn't even write a book. They just printed out my blog posts and stapled them together. You know what I mean? Like this is this is literally like what my book was. It was just a bunch of file print staple. And, and you know, a very clever reader was like, you mean I can just read all this for free on the internet? I was like, yes, you can. And <laughs> you could just go online. So, so it was about gratitude. Then what happened, Chase, was I got burnt out. I got really burnt out because this, this story I'm telling is like 2008 to 2012. Three books, Book of Awesome, Book of Even More Awesome, Book of Holiday Awesome, five calendars, two journals of awesome, app of awesome. I get totally burnt out. I'm still alone. I'm still living by myself. I'm downtown. And I eventually take a step back and I'm like, I am so head down in my work that I'm not making time to like, you know, cook, exercise, date, you know, like sometimes shower. Like, like I was not even there. And so I... I take a huge step back. I don't write anything for three years. And I decide I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to try to become a better person. I start going to the gym. I start learning how to cook. I start putting myself back on dating sites. You know, uh, I say back, but really for the first time, because it takes me a year or two after my divorce. So I even have the courage to start dating again. And then over time, guess what happens? When you put your best self out to the world, the world gives you its best self too. And I end up meeting an incredible woman named Leslie. We fall in love. We get married. This is over a couple of years. I didn't. I didn't propose on the second date. Um, and then on the flight home from our honeymoon, on the flight home on the actual plane, she's like, "I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. Do we have a layover?" I was like, "Yeah, we got this layover in Malaysia." She's like, "Well, I need to find a pharmacy there. I need to find a place to lie down." So we find a pharmacy, find a place to lie down. We get back on the airplane, and Leslie's like, "I don't know if I'm going to make it." I was like, "Well, it's a 13-hour flight home. Are you sure you're up for this?" She's like, "Yeah, I'm up for this." So the plane door closes. We go up through the clouds. She goes to the tiny airplane bathroom in the front of the airplane. She comes back to our seats and she says, I'm pregnant. And she bought the pregnancy test in the Malaysia airport pharmacy. And she did the pregnancy test in the airplane bathroom. Why do I tell you that story? Because for the first time in, because <laughs> for the first time in those three years where I wasn't writing, I get back to Toronto and I am so inspired to write a love letter to my unborn child on how to live a happy life. I had spent a few years handling the media related to the Book of Awesome and, and you know, just sort of being in that world that I was uncomfortable being in, but people were putting me in that category of like, well, how do you be happy? So eventually I wrote this letter. The letter gets published in 2016. It is called The Happiness Equation. So that book actually is the letter I wrote to my child before he was born. And then people said to me, oh, so you're not just a, the awesome guy you're actually writing about intentional living. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm writing about intentional living. That sounds good. And and people were like, oh, okay, so so you've taken the gratitude stuff you wrote before and you've just expanded. I was like, hmm, yeah. And then I thought yeah, to myself, right. yeah, you're right. And I was like, I am. And, and can you get out of the way so I can start telling people that now? You know. And so basically, <laughs> and so basically what happened, Chase, is, this is a theme that I talk about actually in my new book. It is we so often in life think of the past as sort of like breaking something down and building something new when actually all of us are works in progress and the past simply is transcended and included in something new. You know, trip hop doesn't destroy hip hop, but it's an evolution from it. Um, Uber it doesn't destroy, you know, Google Maps. It's an evolution from it. It uses mapping technology. There's no Siri without search. There's no, there's no you of today without the you of yesterday. 
And so for me, the book Awesome was about gratitude. The happiest equation was about happiness. And now on resilience, it's just me thinking that I, more than anything, value the shortness of life, the, the, the sort of fleeting 30,000 days we all have. And if I can write or focus my mind on anything, it has to be about these big life themes because that's the stuff I think about it. And so I don't think of myself as someone who is smarter than other people. If anything, I do no work at all. I do no research. I'm not an academic. I don't study anything. All I do is read a ton and try my best to distill everything I understand into a simple framework that work for me and hopefully for other people. And so that's the path I took to writing about resilience. And it's how I approach all my work now. Well, it's fascinating. And I, uh, I'm going to feed what I heard back to you. Um, and I'm going to try and do it in like a, a sentence. It's all these big things started as very, very small things that you were, were near and close to you. <laughs> I don't know. It, it yeah. seems like, it's yeah. like, um, and you know, I, I find that this is, and I'm sure you do in your interactions out on book tour and with your blog and all your fans and followers, that there's this a gap between where most people are and where they want to be. And I find this personally all the time, uh, especially in different areas. There might be an area that I have mastery in that just really inflames this area where I'm terrible. And, uh, and it exacerbates when you realize that you've got so much distance to cover. Um, and it, do you feel like you're, uh, and as you're sort of unpeeling, for example, happiness, um, is it, it, it like, is it a very, very individualized experience or, or, or is it in the, in the, um, are we all human is, are, is, are these fundamental things? And, and I'm, I asked this because in writing a letter for happiness, is it presumptive that, you know, are you, you putting this out for you and your, your unborn child, but of course, millions of people get tons of value. So are you trying to create a framework for everybody in your work or is it really just for you? And it just so happens that there, there we, we are universal enough that we get benefit from learning about real journey. So I learned a hard lesson when I was first writing 1000awesomethings.com, which is I started this blog for me. I was trying to cheer myself up. I was going through a divorce. I had just lost my closest friend to suicide and I needed a place to go online that I didn't even send anybody, but just as a way to cheer myself up. And when I wrote those original blog posts about old dangerous playground equipment or fat baseball players, you know, they started gaining an audience and people started sending them around. When I started getting traffic, so I'd hit like reddit.com or whatever, fark.com at the time. And I'd be like, oh, now there's people reading me. I was like, oh, I, I got to write about the, the, the 12 most popular breakfast cereals because that's what goes to the front page of Reddit. And so like, I suddenly I started to like, kowtow to my to the audience and trying to write viral posts because I was looking for traffic. And guess what, Chase? You won't be surprised to hear those posts stank. Like they just sucked because yeah. I was literally trying to serve somebody that was just invisible other. Um, I got lost in that. And I, if you look back, you know, I, I mentioned all these properties are awesome. It's like maybe I extended too far. So I'm in like Krusty the Crown imitation gruel territory, you know, nine out of 10 orphans can't tell the difference. And so I'm like way out there on the Austin branch. And it takes me a while to get back to the baseline. And the way that I got back to the baseline to answer your question is I read this essay by David Foster Wallace called The Nature of the Fun. And in this essay, he says, after you have commercial success, you are thrilled as an artist because 
you now get everything you wanted. You get eyeballs, you get money, you get attention, and more than anything else, you get praise for your art. You are given proof that your art is worthy. So, of course, you then serve those people that are paying you for your art. The problem is, and this might be like, you know, you can reference like a band that just releases the same album over and over again. The problem is you, you start one-dimensionalizing yourself. And it takes you a long time to realize that the reason your art got popular in the first place was because you were having fun making it selfishly. So ironically, the way to find your audience again and again and again is to ignore your audience and just focus on having fun and being selfish. And whenever in my life I find that everything I'm doing happens to be for money or getting paid or you know, I'm going down a sequel path that I just suddenly notice that I'm writing the second or third version of the same thing, I try to take a deep breath and a pause and say, what could I do just for fun? And last year, I launched three books. So it's my podcast. My podcast makes no, no money, no money. In fact, it costs me like five to $10,000 a year just to like pay for production and everything. But I said to myself, I, I don't have anything in my life that I'm doing just for fun. I have to have something that's just for fun. And of course, because David Foster Wallace is way smarter than me, he's right. As soon as you start doing that and being selfish about it, you, you then guess what? An audience comes running because they're interested in the unique human perspective that you have. So was I trying to say, I know more about happiness in the whole world. I'm going to add the hundred and first thousandth book to the pile and write everything <laughs> about happiness that you guys should all read. No, I was just trying to write my version of happiness for my son in my selfish way. And if, if, if it struck a nerve, it's only because I was selfish writing it. I think that is so poetic and it maps to my own experience. And I think that's the, the a missing ingredient for so many people. Like we're always chasing the other, the out there, the distant, the, and you know, what you find if you really like what you just described and is a pattern that I've seen in, in the show and creative live and people that are the happiest, most successful and fulfilled people is that there's this, this, a realization that you have everything you need inside of you at the moment. And that doesn't say that you don't need to learn more, but you have the tools necessary. And like the answers are in here. They're not out there. They're fun. They're individual. They're personal. And, you know, we've been taught, I don't know if it's our culture. And I think this is, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second, but that it's, I don't know how we have been programmed. So, First, I want you to answer to me, why have we been programmed that everything else is out there? And then two, bring us back to how this is a function of resilience in, in, our, in our culture or in your world, really, because it seems to be lacking in our culture. So yeah, give me your thoughts A gigantic two-part question, vintage chase. I love yeah. it. Um, okay, so here's what I'll say on the first part, which is, of course, we have a tendency to believe that we should follow the market because as consumers or readers or purchasers or, or eyeballs for art, we like we know what we like. And so the way any artist starts is by mimicking, finding your voice, finding your true calling. Uh, the only thing to say is, look what actually works. It is the books, if we're going to talk about books for it as an example, that are actually truly disruptive. The Book of Awesome probably worked because there was never a self-help book with a black cover and a rainbow font. That was just a list of awesome things. That's it. Like it was like a weird book. The subtle art not giving a fuck. Like it's just an unusual thing to do to put the F word on your cover. <laughs> no one else had done it. Yeah. Now everyone, now everyone's doing it, right? 
I'm surprised yeah. you and I both didn't just jab the effort in the middle of our titles because that's what yeah. everyone's taught to do. We have to follow the herd. But the only thing that you have is your unique lens on the world, your unique perspective. And so it is really hard to stick to it, but you have to fall, you have to look at what's popular and then go inside and try to make your unique thing. How does what does that have to do with resilience? Second part question. Well, yeah. here's the reason I got into resilience. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe explain it with a kind of high level view and a low level view. The high level view is we live in the most abundant time ever in human civilization. We have more money than we've ever ever had. We have longer lifespans than we've ever had. We have uh, higher education rates than we've ever had. Um, most of us have clean water coming out of our taps. We feel safe when we walk out the front door. We can marry who we want. We can live where we please. Like these things were like put in jail type of fences not, not too long ago. And we got all of that. We live in an awesome world. We have never had it better. No one's dying of the plague. No one's getting shipped off to war. There's no famine that we're going through. Like we are living in awesome town. Yet at the exact same time, we have higher than ever reported levels of anxiety, loneliness, depression, suicide. And so why? You know, why? Why is anxiety spiked 30% over the past five years, according to Dr. Gene Twenge at San Diego University? Why? Why is that? Why, are, why according to some stature, suicide rates double murder rates? Why? What's going on? And so to me, the first drives the second, meaning because life is so quote unquote easy right now, we have, we live in an awesome world. We live in, it's, it, we're, we're living in an era of infinite abundance. We actually have not developed the internal musculature to handle failure or even perceived failure. We are turning into an army of porcelain dolls. We are soft. And I'm talking about myself here too. It's like we're thin skinned. You get two likes on your picture. You're like, I got no friends. Your boss sends you a rude email. You're like, I got to call in sick tomorrow. I can't go back to work. And, and this was brought home to me. Here's the, the micro example by a 50 something year old man that approached me after a speech. And he said, Neil, I don't know what's wrong with my son, but you got to help me. He was captain of the football team in high school. He graduated valedictorian. He was at the top of his class. He got a scholarship to Duke University. He took one of the hardest programs there. He graduated on the dean's list. He got one of the top jobs you could get. And on his first day of work, he called me from his bed that night crying, saying, Dad, my boss sent me an email that I thought was kind of mean. I don't think I can go back to that company tomorrow. And I was wow. like, what I heard in that story, Chase, was like, that's me. <laughs> I would have said that too. I can't believe a rude email on your first day. I'd be indignant. But I'm like, all of us feel so thin-skinned right now. Cell phones hurt. Cell phones tell us we're never good enough. You know, everyone's got more likes than us, more followers, more Amazon reviews. Everyone's got more of everything than us. Everyone sounds like they've got a million book sales or everyone that's got a million says, see the, sees the people that sell 10 million, 10 million. It's never ending. Oprah's looking at how many followers Justin Bieber has. It's never ending. You can't be the best anymore. So as a result, I think the muscle we all need to build, we all have to build, we all have to kind of, kind of try to build is resilience. We have to figure out how to build that internal infrastructure to be stronger than we are today. Well, you, you've brought the book up into a series of secrets. And so I'm hoping that you're going to, uh, I don't want, don't give them all away because this, if you're listening right now, this is a must purchase book. It's a hundred percent. Like if anything that <laughs> Neil just said around anxiety, frustration, or you've felt a little thin skinned, I think is, as I know 
some things that get me off my game are remarkable. I'm so disappointed in myself regularly. Um, but it's just a, it's a must buy, but give us a couple. Uh, yeah. First of all, the framework, I think this, this, that, that we're all porcelain dolls. That's a beautiful choice, uh, of words up there in the front of the book, but, um, so let's zoom into a day, okay? Because we all live uh, a day at a time. So let me give you something to do every morning, something to do every day at lunch, and something to do every day at night that will actually help strengthen your mind and build resilience. First thing for, for those of you who are about, like, if you're not ready to take notes, now is a good time. This is um, this two minute, the two minute morning practice. Uh, you got to cover that, Neil. This is super, That's super. That, you're, this is beautiful. I was just, about, I was just about to do that. So, okay. um, now's a, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so I, if I ask a room full of people, how many of you wake up within 10 feet of your cell phone, almost every single hand goes up in a huge room of people. And then I say to the audience, okay, if you drank a bottle of wine before bed every night, woke up and drank a bottle of wine as soon as you got up in the morning and slept with a bottle of wine within 10 feet of your pillow, what would we call you? Like we, you'd be a rampant alcoholic. And at the same time, all of us are sleeping basically with our cell phones and we don't see what this addiction is doing to us, but it is jostling our mind into a low resilient state as soon as we wake up. So how do you start your day? First of all, plug that thing into the basement. Move it at least 20 seconds, 20 steps away from you, as far as you can go. Okay, I don't know how big your apartment is or wherever you live, but in my case, I'm in a house with my wife and, and our kids. So I put, I, we actually have our phone chargers in our basement and we sleep upstairs. So we have to like walk to get them. So what do you start your day with? It's a two minute morning ritual that helps strengthen your mind. You get, grab an index card or a piece of paper or a journal and you write down three prompts every single day. And they are, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on. I will let go of is a way to crystallize and eject an anxiety. There's research in Science Magazine that shows that if you can do this, you actually minimize your regrets and you go through the day without thinking about the thing you write down. This was pretty common, Chase, through like religion, you know, Catholic confession chamber, Judaism, Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism. They all have like ways to get rid of your the thing you're worrying about. But the problem is the fastest growing religion in the world right now is no religion. So we've lost this little like place we have to put our anxieties. I think that's partly why like websites like postsecret.com, which like collect people's worries, like are so popular. So I write down, you know, I will let go of the five pounds I gained on my stomach over Thanksgiving holidays. I will let go of comparing my book sales to Tim Ferriss's. <laughs> I will let go of you know, um, worrying if I'm going to be on the New York Times bestseller list, or I will let go of, how about this one? The nasty email I sent to my assistant at 11.30 PM last night when I was in a really hangry and angry state that I, I feel so regretful about. I feel like a terrible human being. Why was I so nasty in an email? Why did I do that? I will let go of it. I won't carry it with me all day. Number two, I am grateful for uh, research by Emmons and McCullough shows that if you can write down even 10 things that you're grateful for by the end of the week, after a 10-week period, you're not only happier, you're physically healthier. And they have to be specific. So you can't write down, you know, my family and my dog every day. You have to write down, like, when my husband Antonio put the toilet seat down. You know, when my, when my three-year-old gave me a high five when he got home from school. Uh, the smell of the leaves on my driveway in the fall. Whatever you want to write. But it has to be specific. 
And the reason this gratitude practice is so important is because all of our brains, thanks to this little amygdala thing in the, in the middle of our brains that fires fight or flight helmets all day, all of our brains naturally veer towards the negative. We want to read the nasty news headline. We want to read about the Trump tweet. We want to rubberneck at the car accident. So we actually have to practice putting our mind in a positive place to start the day. And then the third thing is I will focus on. So remember, we are, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on. I will focus on cars one will do from your endless could do, should do list. It is too often that we suffer from decision fatigue. At the end of the day, you have 147 emails in your sent items and you feel like you got nothing done. The beautiful thing about I will focus on is it lets your to-do list turn down to one thing, okay? So the next morning you can just cross it off. That's the way to start your day for a mentally strong day. I love it. And just when you think about resilience, what are the components of resilience? Clearly starting your day on the front foot, um, you know, unplugging mm-hmm. the phone, your, the, the practice that you just described. But are there other components for resilience? Or Yeah, you- well, that, well that, that question really dovetails nicely into what I think you should do in the middle of the day. So there's a phrase I learned recently um, called cognitive entrenchment. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but it basically is referring to the fact that as we get older, most of us actually increase our intellectual fragility. So we become less resilient because we get what's called cognitive entrenchment. We end up sticking into our lane so deeply that we cannot carve ourselves out. Um, The study I love to quote here is that Nobel Prize winners are 22 times more likely than their scientific peers to have a totally amateur, terrible hobby unrelated to science outside of their discipline. Meaning, and I'm using examples that are actually from the study, they are part-time magic show teachers at kids' birthday parties or glass blowers, or they're, they're starting as Horatio in like the local town's play down in the park. Like they are doing something totally weird way outside their comfort zone. And so the thing I recommend everyone do in the middle of their day at some point from morning to night is have a weird hobby. Be doing something that you suck at. Your learning rate is the steepest when you know the least. So a big way to avoid cognitive entrenchment or intellectual fragility and to actually make your mind more flexible and to increase its resilience is to always be doing something you stink at and be starting from the beginning. And <laughs> yeah, I, I love it, man. I call it permission to suck. Yes. Like, that, like it's to, to me that this, the, the concept of doing something that you're, that brings you joy. And this is like, how do I find these things? Well, it, it's literally about experimenting and looking into your childhood, but giving yourself uh, permission to suck, to, to just be with the suckiness, whether that's skateboarding or, uh, playing cards or drawing. Oh my God, you should see like, <laughs> like the things that I try and engage in for this, uh, for this exercise. Um, do you know the, the term, um, what is it? Default neural network. Is that related basically that is like the patterns that we get in. Is that related to that? Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of mental entrenchment that you're talking about? Do you know the, how those things are related? Maybe. I would like to have a really smart answer right now and talk about how the science, science really paints these two things together beautifully, but I sadly had, don't know that phrase, so I can't, I can't do that. But it Dang. sounds very Dang. similar because yeah. – uh, yeah. 
So sorry, for, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I didn't mean to talk over you. For, like, so for three books, my podcast, I interviewed Chris Anderson, right? He runs TED. And he told mm-hmm. me when I talked to him that the reason he designs TED as a series of totally unrelated talks, like back to back to back. So if you go to the TED conference, it's like, you know, here's a ballet dancer followed by like a refugee from uh, Iraq followed, <laughs> followed by like Chase Jarvis. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, what is, what is the point? And he says, the reason he designs TED that way is so that by the end of the conference, every single person in the room has a gigantic aha related to their core discipline that they never would have reached if they didn't see totally um, unrelated themes. And of course, the best known example is Steve Jobs taking calligraphy at Reed College and then later applying it to create the font for the for the Apple computer. It's like, we just don't know what the incongruent themes or things you will learn. We don't know the models. We, we Nobody's smart enough to know how the whole world works. So like all we can do is trust that if you're doing different things over and over again, you'll be better at the actual thing you're doing. So powerful. I love, and, and there's this beauty in variety and variety and like childlike wonder and it makes you feel good. Also, it has this juxtaposing power, like the things that you're actually good at. You're like, oh, it's nice to not suck when you when you get out of the thing that you do that sucks every once in a while. Um, well, when I talk, yeah, when I talk to friends, I'm like, so what sport do you play? Like adult friends, they're like, oh, I, I like run. You know, like that's the most. I run. That's my thing. I run. And I'm like, hmm, what sports did you play in like ninth grade? And they're like, oh, well, like every week in like phys ed class, we had like you know volleyball one week, then like track and field and then it was followed by like basketball and that was i was like interesting isn't that interesting that at like 14 years old you were told every single week to be starting something totally new you learn all the rules you have to like make up new teams you haven't played it before and next week you won't play it again but as an adult we like we're like running that's my thing running <laughs> so actually now in toronto at the city of toronto there's an there's a sports thing i can sign up for that's just like every week it has a different sport so this winter, I'm going to do it because it's like I have to practice what I preach, but it's also like I, I will I will suck at everything and hopefully so do other people. I don't want to hear, see like a dodgeball ringer in my league. I don't know yet, but I just don't want yeah. to. I want to be doing random things. No. Well, I remember this a, a little bit from um, – I looked back at some of the notes around your creative live class and like this. there's this idea you just mentioned, practice what you preach. And I think that's something that's fascinating about you know having deconstructed – some of the most successful people in our culture, uh, you included, there is this real, like an openness and a desire to take your own medicine. And so I was just, I got lit up a little bit when I'm like, I envisioned you actually taking this class this winter. And, and then I thought back to myself and I'm like, yep, I was in my cold plunge this morning at 6:45 AM wow. I got in a bucket of 38 degree water. And, you know, I, I, I preach this stuff. And so of the exercises that this is going to get a little personal of the exercises that you prescribe, and there are many, I want to get to another one here in just a second, but let's just take the two minute morning, um, morning example. How many of these do you do? Like, honestly confess here in front of all of us, how much do you practice your own, your own jujitsu? And so. Um, if you don't yeah. get it all every day, what do you prioritize? So the first of all, when I said I write all my books selfishly, like for myself, and if they happen to serve other people, like that's the benefit of writing for yourself. Well, that's true. So when I write a book on resilience, it's because I'm like, I identify with that kid crying about his, like the chapter two of You Are Awesome is all about how I failed at my first job because I could not handle 
the stress of like, I, I was in marketing at Procter and Gamble, like for selling CoverGirl makeup it was my first job out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like Dean's list. I was like super, you know, I got straight A's in high school and then like, I suddenly stank at my first job. And I, I was so, I was put on a performance improvement plan. I couldn't handle myself in meetings. And just before they fired me, I quit. So like, <laughs> guess who's low resilience, Chase? Like this guy, you're talking to him, you know? Um, so do I practice everything? No, but this is the beautiful thing. This is the beautiful thing. The goal with all of this stuff is not to be perfect. It is just to be better than before. At the end of a yoga class, they always say, thank you for your practice. And I always wondered, like, why do they say that? Like, what do you mean practice? I'm not practicing yoga. Actually, I am. I am never going to get perfect in yoga. They're never like perfect downward dog. We'll never see you again. Come back in six months. Maybe if you need an adjustment. They're like, you will never get this perfectly right. So on resilience, do I do 10-minute mornings every day? No. I have the two-minute mornings journal right beside my bed. I try to do it every morning. Sometimes my three-year-old is screaming at four in the morning because they wet their bed, and I run downstairs, and he won't go back to sleep, and then the baby starts crying at five, and suddenly like, I'm watching Paw Patrol at 5.30 on the couch, like half blurry. Like, you think I'm going to run back upstairs and do my journal? I will let go of my kids crying all day. No, I don't do that. I'm not perfect. I'm a human. So I will very happily and easily confess that I these are all practices I strive to do. I know what to do. I can intellectualize that I should do them. I do them more than probably average, but I'm not perfect. I certainly don't do them every day. Oh, I love it. I think that's, you know, I think whether it's couch and vulnerability, authenticity, being it, keeping it real, whatever, I think that's another thing that if that the folks at home want to know that there's that you practice your own medicine, but there's this gap. And like the idea of being perfect is, is not real. And we have to keep reinforcing that. I think as, a, as uh, in, our, in our culture, we need to remind ourselves and one another that, that there's like progress is not, you know, progress over perfection. Um, so thanks for being. <laughs> and also if you lose, so like I talked to a novelist once, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Alain Mastai, and he wrote a book called um, All Your Wrong Tomorrows. It's a beautiful sci-fi book, his first novel. And he's a, he's a, he's a great writer and he, he now writes for the TV show, This Is Us. And I asked him, you know, what drives your writing? And he said, oh, I feel like I have like a wobbly tooth in the back of my mouth and it hurts. It's like one of those teeth that like, it's going to fall out and you can touch it with your tongue and it, you know, it kind of feels good in a way to play with it. And and he's like, all I'm doing in all my writing is I'm touching my tongue on that tooth. And I loved that metaphor, Chase, because the point is, if the tooth falls out, as he said, maybe you're Harper Lee. You're right to kill a mockingbird and you're like, mic drop, I'm done. You know, but if the tooth stays a little bit painful and a little bit wobbly and you can't stop touching your tongue to it, maybe that's because you can't quite solve it. And that's actually what's driving all of your work, all of your writing, all of your art. You're producing it to try to play with that wobbly tooth. And, you know, wait, there's a, maybe a sub metaphor on what happens if it gets infected and you can become like a crazy like writer, like in, in The Shining or something. But I like the metaphor that it's just pain, our own pains that we're playing with and we're enjoying the process of exploring them. You're writing... Well, you're speaking, of course, but also you're writing and it's so accessible and it, it feels like you're, it, it feels like you're getting advice from a long-term friend. And it's, a, I think that is, that is your special gift. And, and one of the reasons you've been so successful as an author and a podcaster and a writer, a blogger, et cetera. But like, is there a, when you're thinking about writing and you're saying you're writing for yourself, is there like 
do you write most of your stuff as if you, and I, I think I'm asking this question for a selfish reason, but also because I feel like going back to that, we're always looking for stuff outside or beyond who we already are. And we want to get better and we look at those other people, but is there a world where when you're actually physically writing, you're thinking like, what is, you know, Sally going to think about this? Or is it, yeah. this may never see the light of day. I'm writing this to Neil. So get, mm -hmm. get real cool for me because like, it, I think it'll, it'll help me, but it'll also help a lot of people who are, as they're making art, like who are they making art mm -hmm. for as an audience of one? And if that one is you, or is it your best friend? Because you have this radical approachability. I mean, you talk about your, you know, your career, all your different moves from P&G and Walmart and, and it's, it's like you've lived a hundred lives that everyone can connect to you, not dissimilar to what you just said about Chris Anderson. So can you, what's, yeah. who do you, who are you like when you're actually sitting down putting pen to paper or fingers to keys, like who's your audience? What an astute question. I've never been asked this before. And, and as you're asking me, I'm like, oh, what is it? And I, I think I know what it is. When I was a kid, like most kids, like every kid, I loved books. If you walk into anyone's house and you say, can I see your children's bookshelf? It's always this like, giant collection of colored and tattered papers stuffed to the brims. They're giving books at Christmas and, 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 and birthday parties. And every, it's like a pride. It's a pride. It's a thing of pride. And, and you know, every night their parents read them a couple books from the bookshelf. And like every kid, to the best of my knowledge, loves reading and books. And what happened to me, which I think is pretty common with a lot of people, is I grew to hate it. I was told what to read when I was when when somebody shoved the Great Gatsby down my throat in grade ten, followed by Hamlet, followed by all this stuff I didn't want to read. I was like, "This is dry. It's boring. There's there's no pictures. There's no. But what happened to like things that pop, like Archie Comics or Mad Magazine? I was like, and then it gets even worse when I went to college or university because now I'm reading like textbooks and they're dry and they're boring and it's like so academic. And guess what happened, Jace? By the end of college, I stopped reading books. And did you know that one in three Americans? read zero books last year the actual publishing industry the industry that you know um both of us are kind of hanging out in right now it's like it's tiny it's tiny to be like a number one new york times bestseller you might just sell like you know eight thousand books in one week that's it that would not even be like the top 10 movies if you sold that many tickets uh, at the box office over the weekend like it, it, the industry is so small and when i ask people why that is seth godin has the best quote ever he's like it's because the publishing industry is ladies and gentlemen writing books for ladies and gentlemen published by ladies and gentlemen and his point what he's trying to make here is that it's snooty the whole thing is literary it's people that use semicolons for fun it's people that like to correct grammar and i hate that i just because i remember being a child and flipping through mad magazine and archie comics and loving loving you know uh, um you know encyclopedia brown books and stuff that like was really really stimulating so i am i think writing to my young little boy and I'm trying to say subversely in all my books, which by the way, none of my seven books have a semicolon in them, as an aside, I'm trying to say, you can love reading again. Reading can be fun. We can bold random words. We can leap, we can put, I have pictures in my books, all my books have pictures in them because I want the book to pass the flip test. I want you to be in the bookstore, flip through it in the one second and be like, oh, it's got air in it, as Stephen King would say. It's got breathability. It's got stuff that you can, you can hang, it can hang out on the back of your toilet. And I'll tell you, Chase, and, and this is just a Neil thing, but the number one compliment I get on any of my books, number one to me, like what, what hits me in the heart is when people say to me, my 17-year-old son does not read any books and he read yours in one night. 
and it makes me almost cry. I'm like almost crying right now as I say that because I can he- I can see my younger self falling out of love with books, and I just want the book industry to be way bigger. I want non-readers to read. I want people who don't like books to like them. That's what I'm trying to. That's what I'm playing for. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'll confess, I put a Kermit the Frog quote in my book, and the editor was like, "Not not my my main editor, but the line editor was like, what are you What are you doing?'" <laughs> it was literally like I had offended. I won't even say if it's a him or a her I, I, or a, a neutral. I I, I said. Look, I, I'm just trying to come at this from a, a bunch of different ways because I, I know that a bunch of different things are going to resonate with you, you don't know. And let's like let's take the semicolon shit out of our <laughs> out of out of our conversation and look at what Kermit says here. It's so smart. <laughs> and it was I, I did you get is the, did you get did you get it in? Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm resilient. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't know if you if you know that famous, um, uh, like there's a Kurt Vonnegut quote, and it says, first rule, do not use semicolons. Um, all they do is show you've been to college. <laughs> you know, it's 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 so it's a, it's a good point because it's like, look, what are we trying to do here? I'm not trying to write a book to prove to somebody that. I qualify to be on their speaking stage or I qualify to be in like the, the literary. I, I don't, I, none of my books, here's the thing. You mentioned they sold a million copies. Guess what? I have never been reviewed. Like none of my books have ever been reviewed by like any book, you know, the New York Times book review or any, the Globe Mail. I, I'm in Canada, the Globe Mail, like no, no official book place has ever decided that my books are worthy of being reviewed. And I used to be all, kind of ticked off about that. I'm like, well, I'm still, why aren't they like writing about my book? And then you're trying to book review. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Cause the people I'm trying to write to don't read that. Like yeah. <laughs> they're listening to your show. They're like people. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just yeah. want to, wa- I want people to read. I become a huge evangelist for books in general. Doesn't gotta be my book. Doesn't gotta be your book. Just books. Cause I believe that they are still to this day, the greatest form of compressed knowledge that we have. And Based on the research from Emory College, 2011, published an annual review of psychology, they open up more of our brains than any other form of media, meaning our mirror neurons, the part of your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, understanding, all the EQ stuff, all the hard-to-build stuff, all the stuff that gets leaders fired at the top of companies because they don't got it, that stuff grows. And then I was like, why does that happen? And a Game of Thrones quotes, quotes came to mind, and the Game of Thrones quotes is, I keep saying the wrong S, Game of Thrones quote, not Game of Thrones quotes. Um, is uh, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. And the truth boom. of the matter is, wow. boom. The, yeah, and like I, I, you know, George R. R. Martin for the win, you know what I mean? And so <laughs> I, I was like, oh, you actually are subverting your own conscience in your mind to become a Japanese schoolgirl through World War II. Or you become a, a side, you know, you actually become another thing when you're, because you're, you're the director. You, you decide what they look like, what they sound like, what the room looks like, what they're wearing. You make all that stuff up. And if you watch a movie uh, or listen to music, uh, you know, or even listen to an audiobook, although I love audiobooks, but like someone else is the voice, the pace, the, you know what I mean? So it's like, if you're reading a book, you're just hanging out with somebody. 
that's yeah. why I think of all my books as a conversation. At the end of all my books, I will say, thanks so much for the chat. I'll see you soon. Because I always think of them like a conversation between two people at 3 a.m. in their driveway before the, the one person gets out of the car. That's like my mental visualization for what the conversation is. Oh, I love that. That's a good one. That's That plus you're writing for your kid. I think those two visuals, they help me. Like, honestly, this is, this is the selfish part of getting to have conversations with you know, the best in the world is like now when I'm, I think that's a very strong visual. When I think about you writing, it's going to be, I mean, the whole, the whole thing might just be me trying to justify the fact that I can't write literary. Like I just, even if I wanted to, it's like, people are like, I don't, I don't know any big words. So I couldn't put them in. It's not like Tim Ferriss always says like, you know, why use a, why use a $10 word when you can use a two cent word? And I'm like, cause you don't know any $10 words maybe like that's, <laughs> that's my thing. Like I, I just don't, I just not that literary to begin with. So that's why <laughs> I don't write literary stuff. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back to that thread that I was pulling on with the accessibility with like, I'm trying to do two things at once here. Talk about your art and also talk about the context that you've written this book about and for and who and what, and, and they're inextricably um, woven together, of course, but like this accessibility of uh, being self-employed and having the corporate experiences that you've had, um, and one of the things that I am remembering, um, it's a little bit cloudy for me right now, but there's a, I'm, I'm always looking for really clean ways of helping one's self or our friends make decisions. And you had a framework for making a decision. Um, I think it was when you were leaving Walmart and it was a two step question that mm -hmm. you were two questions that you asked yourself. Um, yeah. On the so, way out the door. Might be a little mm -hmm. bit esoteric, but I just no, love no. these simple frameworks. And again, getting at information and getting like having it be so accessible because this is a thing that I get asked, you know, virtually. I think if you if you are a person who has the good fortune of pursuing your passions and there are so many people out there that don't, you end up being a career counselor for those folks. And that's maybe yeah. why some of write books and whatnot. And it was just so eloquent. And I'm wondering if you can replay that for us. Sure. Well, I will say for anyone listening who's like more on the conservative side, maybe your family is from like Indian, like my I'm Indian by background, uh, or you have more conservative parents and you like are taught don't quit your day job and like you need to have, you know, you're supposed to be a doctor. And if you fail at that, then hopefully a lawyer. And if you fail at that, hopefully an engineer, but at least have a paycheck and at least have a pension and at least have benefits. Come on. It's pro I, I mention all that because I wrote five books over eight years, plus a thousand blog posts, plus 200 speeches while I worked at Walmart. This entire thing was a side hustle till just a couple years ago. So the part of the reason was because I was, per I was, I was liked Walmart. I was doing well there. I was, I was director of leadership development. I got a chance to work for our CEO for a few years uh, as the chief of staff type of thing. And so I, I really enjoyed it. And I always thought that this book of awesome stuff was like a flash in the pan. Like I was like, ah, 15 minutes of fame. Like it'll go away. And you know, I'll be one of those muted voices from distant memory who wrote a funny blog 10 years ago. There's a million of those people. Um, but then here's what happened, Chase. Um, the, I kept wanting to write and I kept leaning into the writing and I kept leaning into my my day job at Walmart and eventually push came to shove and I ran out of time. When Leslie and I got married and we had, we had our first child, it was like, hey, do you want to be home for like dinner every night and like bath and like bedtime and books? And I was like, yes, every every day. I want to be like a, I want to be like an intentional father. 
It's like, well, then you can't work every night. <laughs> you can't write every night, write blog posts and stuff. So I had to make a decision, which is, do I quit Walmart or do I quit writing books? Which one is it going to be? And so I came up with the help of a mentor uh, who, who was actually the, the CEO of Walmart at the time, uh, Dave Cheese, right? And he came up with a model with me on the two questions to ask yourself to decide whether or not to quit your job. And they were this. Number one, the deathbed question. And number two, the plan B question. So the deathbed question asks a very simple and incisive point, which is, which of the two would you regret not doing more on your deathbed? Which one on your deathbed would you like, ah, damn, I really should have done that one. Like, which, which was that the greater ah for? And for me, the answer was pretty clear. It was the writing books thing. I was like, maybe I could work my way up to like the vice president of human resources at Walmart. And don't get me wrong, that'd be an incredible job. And I would love to lead a huge team of people. But I wouldn't regret that as much as if I couldn't have written the next book. So I was like, oh, that's the book thing. And then the second question is the plan B question. This is, what will you do if it fails? Meaning, what is your actual plan B? And I thought, well, if the writing books thing fails, and it still can, and who's to say my next couple of books won't sell at all? And then suddenly it's like, I can't get an advance, I can't get a book, and I'm like, back to the beginning. Well, I thought, well, hmm, I guess I could brush up my like LinkedIn profile and go knocking on doors. And then Dave, my boss, said, well, do you think you could do that? I was like, yeah, it'd be humbling, but I could do that. And he's like, do you think you'd get another job? I was like, yeah. I mean, even if I had to take a demotion or you know, start at a different level or a different company, I, I could do that. And he's like, hmm, so you have a good plan B? I was like, yes. He's like, what if you did the Walmart thing? What's your plan B? I was like, well, you mean five years later, like knocking on a publisher's door and saying, can I write another book? He's like, yeah. I was like, they might not say yes again. <laughs> they might have moved on. Or you know, who knows if I could get back into that world? He's like, ah. So both those questions, the deathbed test and the plan B test, told me that I should go into my writing. And although that answer seems totally obvious now, it was not at all obvious while I was doing both. I love that. And that's so like this concept that, that the people who that we look up to as experts or <clears throat> have, you know, again, this fulfillment that I keep talking about, or they found something that they love. Like there's this fake notion, this script in our culture about they bet it all on black and burn the boats. And I understand if you need, you know, want to lose 10 pounds or quit smoking or whatever, you might have to uh, quote unquote burn the boats. But there's this, you know, in entrepreneurship and in creativity and in, um, I, I think in making a great life, there's this there's um protecting the downside seems to be such a a um unglorious but very real thing if you deconstruct the lives of people who are you know, who you look up to do you th is, is that a um how critical is that to where you have been able to you know the circles that you travel in and what you've been able to do with this one precious life well here's the thing uh, whenever I read a New Yorker profile of an artist, I happen to notice that the like mom was like a famous oil painter and dad was like a trumpet player who played like backup for David Bowie. And I'm like, and they grew up in Brooklyn. And I'm always like, that's not me. My parents were Indian immigrants, hardcore. My dad was like a physics teacher in high school. My mom was like an accountant. And we didn't live in Toronto. We lived in the suburbs, an hour outside. I didn't have any models of artists anywhere in my life. No family, no friends. Everyone on both sides was a doctor. 
you know? And so I had no mental picture. I had no Chase Jarvis live to listen to for inspiration. I had nothing. You know, I had Dave Barry in the Toronto Star on Saturdays to like read and I'd be like, that guy's really funny. So by the way, that was one of the first people I called for my podcast. I was like, I really want to talk to you. And so I don't know how hard it is, but I know it was really hard for me because I had no way to think of it as even a possibility. I could never have dreamt that I would be writing books for a living. Are you kidding me? This was, this was the equivalent of saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Jupiter you know, I don't even know if you can land on Jupiter. I picked a planet that wasn't Mars because I thought Mars was too easy. But like Jupiter, yeah, I doesn't even like, have a land. Is it gas and dust? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just like, I am so far away. And so all I hope to do for my children is, in this one precious life, is give them as many models as possible. Show them many different ways. Avoid cognitive entrenchment by always, always, always trying to see life as a series of random little experiments that grow our resilience and keep us moving forward and living the most positive and intentional life we can. We already talked about what to do with our cell phones when we sleep, but you also want us to delete all of our social media. Yes. Comment, Remember, comment. like, so way back, like half an hour ago, I said I got like a morning thing and a lunchtime thing and a night thing. So my l night thing is go untouchable. Go untouchable. These days we are living in the matrix um, it is impossible. Like, so some stats show that we're now using our cell phones over five hours a day, um, over 11 hours of screen time a day, uh, touching our cell phones over 2000, 2,500 times a day, touching, like just touching. We touch our cell phones more than 2,500 times a day. It's more of like constant fondle. Oh my God. That's crazy. Like how many, God. Cause like, think about all the types you type, right? Like you're, you're typing like text all the time. Like you're touching the thing over and over again. And so it's and it's it's insane. And so the problem is, um, well, there's three problems. Number one is physical. If you look at bright lights within an hour of bedtime, you don't produce as much melatonin, so you don't sleep as deeply. So you're lower resilience when you wake up in the morning. We talked about that. Number two is psychological. We compare everyone else's greatest hits with our director's cut. No matter how great this conversation was with me and you, you know, one of us will turn on Instagram and we'll see that like. Oh, look over there. Uh, Tim Ferriss is talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Or, oh, look over there. Like, Oprah's just hanging out with, like, Liz Gilbert for an hour. And I'm like, ah, damn. Like, those are way better. Those are cool conversations. So this is the thing, right? Like, we just compare everything. If, no matter how good your lunch is, Chase, somebody's at a lobster buffet in the Maldives right now. And you got to believe they're going to be taking pictures of that shit and putting it on Instagram, <laughs> right? So psychologically, we are always in a state of loss. Never good enough always worse. And the third one is really obvious. Is the third, it also starts with the letter P. It's productivity. McKinsey says that we now spend 31% of our day bookmarking, prioritizing, and switching between tasks. No, we're not actually doing anything. We're just deciding what to do. And if you've ever stared at a Netflix screen trying to decide what movie to watch with your partner for like half an hour, like I have, or like Spotify, and you're just like, oh, I guess we don't have time to watch anything. It's time for bed. All we did was look up Rotten Tomatoes rankings and like watch trailers on YouTube. Then it's like their productivity is shot, right? So the solution is to go untouchable. The advocate, the thing I advocate for in You Are Awesome is actually spending one day per week being completely untouchable. No internet connection, no cell phone at all, all day, full day. I do that one day a week. And that is actually one practice I actually do. And sometimes... Chase, I actually scheduled two. 
Okay. And I'm, I'm trying to think next year if I can even get maybe more than two. So why do I do that? Because when I wander around aimlessly for five hours, of course, I do have my laptop. It turns out I actually write way more and I have more interesting ideas. And I move from doing things right to doing the right things. I zoom out on my problems and I move from like, you know, the front of the boat to like the captain's chair. And that one day a week has been how I wrote You Are Awesome It is where my Three Bucks podcast came from. It's how I wrote my newest speech. Like everything good in my life that I have done in the last year or two has come from my untouchable days. So the reason, why do I advocate like an untouchable evening then? Well, here's why. Because most people, when they hear that, they're like, well, I'm an ER nurse. Like I can't just like <laughs> disappear for a day. <laughs> so then I say, well, you're, you're, it's like, you're an ER nurse. But like when you get home, what do you do? Are you on your phone still? We all talk about intermittent fasting. Like it's this hot new thing. Don't eat after dinner. Don't eat before breakfast. Woohoo! You know, it's like, how long can you go without food per day? Everyone's like, oh, cool. I, I'm going like 16 hours. Like I eat dinner at like four now. I don't eat breakfast till like 10. Awesome. Congratulations. How about intermittent fasting on technology? How long are you going when you completely unplug at night till you can plug back in in the morning? The longer that time is, the greater the fermentation of your mind the greater your thoughts will start to turn electric and scatter and splatter in a hundred new directions. You won't, listen, you won't listen to the echo chambers that you naturally live in, feeding you the content if they think you want to feed with the algorithms that they based on what you know, YouTube will just spit at you stuff that you will keep clicking on. You will let your mind unfurl from its mental sleeping bags and guess what will happen? Your best, most brilliant ideas will always come. The third way in this conversation that I want to tell people on how to build resilience is Go untouchable as long as possible from the night to the morning every day. Wisdom. Um, I'm aware that we're running a little bit long, man, but I can't let you go because I need to keep pulling on this thread. And so I said we keep it to an hour, but I didn't, I don't know if you noticed, but I just handcuffed you to the chair that you're sitting in. So you're going to have to stay <laughs> for a few minutes. Um, I got my kids to sleep, so we're good. So you're, you're clear. Okay, good. Um, how do we do that? Everybody, no one is right now is like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to have better ideas. I don't want to be smarter. I don't want to get better sleep. No one is saying that right now. But no, I don't even hesitate to say this, that 99 out of 100 people who are listening are going to do the same thing they did yesterday and they're going to do it again tomorrow. And yet they want to adopt an untouchable day. What I like about the book is you go into how. So give, give, give me, tease it out for us. How is this possible? Because we need a couple of steps to take. We can't just listen to Neil and then hang up and be in that space that we want to be in, but we can't. There's a gap for us. Fill a gap for me. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to paint a picture of what I usually do, which is why I needed to do this. I come home. I put my cell phone on the counter. Uh, we're trying to make dinner and our kids are there and stuff like that. I look at myself and eh, every five minutes or so, I check both my email accounts, my personal and my work. Um, yes, I've, I've deleted all social media apps, but I still like can log in through the browser. I can still go on Amazon and check my Amazon rating. I can still go and see like, you know, what injury reports are new on like my fantasy football roster. And like, you know, those apps all update forever. There's no end to them. 
you know, Damian Williams may or may not show up to practice. And I got him starting on Sunday. Do, is he showing up to practice or not? Like check this thing like religiously. And you know what I do? I check it all the way till I go to bed. It's the last thing I do. I will even come downstairs in my boxer shorts just to send one more email. I will come downstairs just to check one more thing or to make one more note. And then when I wake up in the morning, of course, I thought of two or three other things. So I have to go downstairs again. It's impossible for me to let go of this thing. It is a drug. So what do I do? I Now what I do is I go to my wife, Leslie, when I get home from work, and I hand her my phone and I say, please hide this from me. Don't tell me where you put it. And don't give it back to me until tomorrow morning. She disappears from view. I don't know where she goes. She might go a different place every time. And she actually hides it like in the guitar hanging from the wall or something, okay? And um, I can't get it anymore. And maybe an hour later, I was like, can I have my phone again? I just want to... She's like, nope, nope, you can't. And uh, feeling like I'm handcuffed to the chair is one thing. Feeling like I'm handcuffed away from my phone is another. It's actually totally liberating. So when I preach about untouchable days, people always say to me, oh, Neil, you don't understand. Like, I have to have my cell phone on. What if my kid breaks his femur at recess? You know, like, what about emergencies? What about emergencies? What if you had 17 missed calls from your husband as he fell off his bike on the way to work? What about emergencies? And my wife said the same thing to me. She did not like the fact, Chase, that I get went on this huge rant about how nobody had cell phones like 15 years ago. We all got through it fine. She was like, I want to be able to reach you at lunch. So I decided to open my cell phone on my untouchable days at lunchtime for an hour. But of course, when I did that, there was never any emergencies. There was only 17 text messages and 35 emails waiting for me, and they all sounded important. So I lost my productive afternoon completely. After a year of doing that, Leslie and I got into a habit where I said to her, I'm actually going to lock it all day. Like I'll be on airplane mode all day, or I'll turn my phone off all day. And she, all she says to me now, Chase, is, well, where are you going to be? Like, where approximately are you going to be? Are you going to be on this street? You might be at this coffee shop. Like, I just need to mentally know how to find you if there really was an emergency. And that gives us both some peace of mind. And there's never been an emergency. <laughs> there's never been an emergency. We, we have to stop living under this surveillance culture where we're actually surveilling ourselves. It's like, you don't really need to track your kid's whereabouts through their cell phone 24 hours a day. You just don't really need to watch your kid at daycare through a video camera. You just don't. I know I go on a rant and it's controversial and stuff, but you just don't. Let go. We don't need to track each other's footsteps. We don't even need to track our own footsteps. Just stop. Just just let go. It's okay to go for a walk in nature. It's cool to leave your cell phone at your desk at lunchtime if you're working in an office. Just be like, hey, guys, I'll see you at 1. Go take a nap in your car by the river. That's what I used to do at Walmart sometimes. You come back turbocharged for the afternoon. You are the most productive person in the office just from an untouchable lunch. So that's my rant on how to do it. Oh, I love it. And it's inspiring as hell. Um, so resiliency in our culture, all time low, we're thin skinned. We have everything we need at a touch of a button. Is there a, is there a cure all or are we just trying to get better? Well, here's the thing. I'm a parent and my fellow parents say to me, hmm, how do I get my kid into the best school? Or, hmm, how do I give them this great experience, going to this perfect camp where they're going to meet their lifelong friends and be bunking with Dale for 17 years and then they'll he'll be friends with Dale forever. And you know what we're doing as parents? We are coddling our children. 
we are inadvertently depriving them of the necessary experiences they need in order to build resilience. And so as a result, when they're older and they unfortunately do go through a breakup or a divorce or they get fired from a job, they don't have the skills to handle it. So what I'm preaching is more of a hands-off approach to life, letting us navigate through challenge honestly, earnestly, and openly. Talk about the things that are happening. Use some of the models I share, and you are awesome if you if you can. That they're they're written for me as an adult to learn resilience because I sure didn't learn it as a kid. My parents they they kept me cozy and gave me a lot of gold stars, and I love them for it, and they love me. But I'm just saying, like, I certainly did not suffer. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying make your kids suffer. I'm saying build up the resilience by letting them navigate life earnestly and honestly. What is the cure all? It is to just live. Don't think you need everything soft and cushy and perfect. You don't. Just live. The more you just live and you navigate through challenge and you navigate through pain, the better equipped you are to do it next time. Yeah, oh, man, that's so eloquent. It's hard to, um, it's really, it's stunning. You've got me just sort of like, I'm sitting here with my mouth open. <laughs> like, it is really weird how cushy it is. And and the, the, it's juxtaposed with the anxiety. And to be fair, there are people who don't have access to clean drinking water. And I want to, you know, we, we think it's it's not just fair. But I am, I am, I want to say, I want to say this in all caps. I am speaking from an extremely privileged position. Yeah. And a reviewer just pointed that out to me. They're like, Neil, wow, must be hard getting fired from Procter and Gamble. Woohoo! Have you ever like tried like growing up in like an indigenous community like where they don't have water? And I'm like. I, I answer, I'm like, no, I haven't tried that. I am extremely lucky. And all I can do is try to communicate how to build resilience from my lens. So yeah. I certainly know I'm so privileged. I, yeah. I know that. I, 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 Paul, I can't do much about it, but I am writing from a position where I know I'm lucky. Fair. And that's why I'm just, I'm just acknowledging it. And, and yet the, I think for the folks, we're also trying to, we can simultaneously acknowledge that and be aware that the, most people who are listening to this podcast right now are um, that that is you know where their clean drinking water is coming from is probably not the answer that's or that the solution that's going to unlock their life. And so, in service of the 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 audience that's listening, uh, it's just remarkable to me that we are as coddled as we are. And what is the Buddha saying? It's like. Uh, Pain is unavoidable. Suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And and it's just, it's, it's, I've never really thought about it through the lens of, of like being okay with getting roughed up a little bit. I don't know. I, I see it in pop culture. We get a lot of white ribbons and, you know, participation ribbons and, you know, whether that's a, a path that we should go down and, and, you know, there's a million ways to argue that, but what's not to me, what's not debatable is developing a set of tools, a set of habits, and just a lens for being able to withstand the stuff that life throws at us. I think it's, it's a super powerful message that you've put in your book here. Congratulations, man. And like, <laughs> you're a machine. You like, I, I, I was just like, You've, you've done so much. Do you have a, um, 
like do you have a lens on what's next or are you just in explore mode now or i know you're obviously helping you know share the the new book that you are awesome like what's 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 next or now for you um i feel super lucky um i've always thought of a week like 168 hours divided by three there's 168 hours in a week for you for me for warren buffett for oprah you know we all have the same amount of time so if you divide that number by three and you got three buckets of 56 if you sleep eight hours a night like the doctors tell you to well that's 56 hours a week like literally a whole bucket of your time each week is sleep then if you work an average job, it's probably a 40-hour week job plus commuting time. Maybe you do evenings and weekends stuff. Let's call that a 56-hour budget. And research shows that not many people work more than that. It's a very, very small percentage. Even people that think they do really don't. And then the point is the two buckets I just mentioned, sleep and work, they both pay for, justify, and mentally create that third bucket. And I'm always, Chase, super cognizant of what I'm spending my third bucket on. And so for the past 10 years, I mentioned eight of those years I was working at Walmart, my third bucket was writing about intentional living through 1000awesomethings.com, through the Book of Awesome, through the Happiness Equation, through You Are Awesome. That's it, right? Giving speeches about all that stuff. Now, Leslie and I have three boys. They're five, three, and one. They're not going to be young forever. They're not going to be young that long. I just know deep in my heart the number one most important thing I can do is spend that 56-hour bucket on being the best dad I can. And I'm partly saying it to you because I just know I can be way better. I just know I can be way better. And I just want to focus on that. Well, I got a message for you from someone who doesn't have children, but someone who knows that you just wrote an amazing book. You are awesome. <laughs> you, I'm sure you are a freaking amazing dad. Just the knowledge you've dropped here today tells me you are. So I, I, I have never been parented by you, but come on. You're, you've got to be an unreal father. And what we do know is you were uh, an insane, insanely talented uh, author. And congratulations on You Are Awesome. Um, makes me want to go back and re retake your Creative Live class. Uh, I'm super excited to share this with the readers. And if you don't, like this is one of those books that's sort of a non-negotiable. You just got to go out and purchase it. Um, thank you so much for writing it. Um, and thanks for being on the show. What a smart guest. And I love taking, watching you take huge subjects and give us things that we can do on a daily basis to feel better at them. Um, you're, you're good at making life feel manageable. So thank you so much for all the work you've done uh, on intentional living and really, really appreciate having you on the show, man. Can't thank you enough. Chase, thank you. You are an artist putting amazing content into the world. I love your podcast. I have been following you for years. I feel like I know you, even though this is the first time we talked, because I've been listening to you and watching you for so long. Being in Creative Live in Seattle was one of the highlights of my entire book tour for, for The Happiness Equation. I love your team. I love the people. It was just a huge thrill. Thank you for the service you're doing. It is my pleasure to like connect with you. I really appreciate all you're putting out in the world. Thank you. Awesome, man. More soon. And thanks again for being on the show. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to 
what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.